Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Comedy Republic is a relatively new venue located in the heart of Melbourne, in Burke Street in the CBD. They're staging a replay festival, a remounting of some of the best comedy festival shows from this year's Melbourne International Comedy Festival. Joining me on the line is the co-owner of Comedy Republic, Kyron Wheatley. Kyron, a very good morning to you. Morning, Richard. How are you doing? Really well. Really well indeed, thank you. Apart from... uh, <coughs> Excuse me, uh, a slight tickle in the throat. Had a COVID yeah. test yesterday. <laughs> All good, but yes, it's yeah, it's the sound of coughing on the radio. Nothing quite like that during yeah. a pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. The oh, great so, thing is we're nowhere near your cough, Richard. You know, there's airwaves between us, so we're all safe. <laughs> now, you're very familiar with radio as a medium. Uh, you were, in a former life, a Triple J announcer. Uh, but now you're a venue owner and you opened Comedy Republic, a dedicated home for live comedy in Melbourne. Uh, what, you opened your doors just two weeks before Melbourne's lockdown last year? Yes, I was on the radio in the age of Netflix and I've opened a venue in the age of a pandemic. It's an interesting choice. I keep making interesting choices, Richard. Uh, no, look, we um, we have thought for years uh, that Melbourne could do with a sort of inner city hub for comedy in the way that London and New York and these other comedy meccas have. And so for quite a while, we thought we should open a place like this. It just so happened that our timing was off. Uh, but we opened our doors on uh, the, the two days prior to that big lockdown last year. So we got four shows out, four shows across two days, 100 people through the venue, and then we closed for the big lockdown. <laughs> Which must have been heartbreaking because uh, opening a, a new venue takes t- planning, it takes time, it obviously takes a lot of passion as well. How did you yeah. kind of, how was it to kind of get through the next couple of months? Uh, well, I mean, the timing, we as comedians, we found it very funny. Uh, that, <laughs> that's, well, that's a silver lining. Yeah, that would all happen on that first weekend. Uh, hilarious. The, the, the amount of time that went into the planning. I mean, we're talking years, all the way up to finally opening the doors and um, thinking, you know, we'd got through that first, you know, the sourdough lockdown, the first one, um, uh, over 18 months ago now, or 18 months ago now about. And um, we thought we'd come through that. It's all done. It's all over. COVID's behind us. It's finished, guys. Let's open a comedy venue. And uh, so we found it funny, I guess. And then, you know, of course, we had um, a lot of support and um, not just, I'm not talking about, I mean, there was a bit of government support as well, but we had support from fans. We started this um, membership program called The Citizens. And uh, basically people who were like, this is a good idea, um, bought a membership. And we got hundreds and hundreds of members in Melbourne um, just sort of backing us to get through the lockdown. And so after that big lockdown was over, we've um, opened, and except for that two weeks here or there, we've been open ever since. Now, certainly during this year's Melbourne International Comedy Festival, Comedy Republic became my temporary home. It was a really great place to <laughs> drop in and have a drink after work before seeing three shows back to back. Talk to us about... Uh, before we get into talking specifically about the replay festival that's been programmed and which is coming up, talk to us about yeah. what you, how you create a venue for comedy. I mean, if you're running a jazz club, for example, you want a certain kind of ambience, a certain kind of style. Acoustics yeah. are going to be very important. Layout is going to be an issue as well. For a comedy venue, talk to us about those concerns? How did you want a a room to be shaped? For example, for people who haven't been to Comedy Republic before, the the main room upstairs, uh, instead of the stage at one end of the room and a long room so that people at the back of the room feel perhaps quite distant from the performer, you've put the stage in the centre of the room with the the audience almost curved around it. So it it remains a very intimate space. Well, that's it, right? I think think more broadly, um, different art forms are better suited different spaces. I think space and place is very, very important to whatever art it is that you're doing. You know, if it's an opera and you're in a grand, you know, in front of a grand facade, that's important. Opera's not going to work in a pub. Um, 
And, you know, I think the same is true of comedy. Uh, like you say, it's true of jazz. So, you know, as we travel, as I said before, going around the world to all these other comedy clubs, they all have the best, um, all have little things in common. And so we've brought a lot of those to Comedy Republic. So some of those things are, for example, let's see how nerdy we can get about comedy here. But, <laughs> but the stage is super low um, because, you know, if you're on a really high stage, that's a very powerful position to be in and you're sort of talking down to people you know it's like it's like a politician on the back of a truck so you get the stage really low and then with the audience you're sort of you're one-on-one you're the same as them and similar to that you actually enter as a comic you enter through the audience so you're coming through you know you're not um you're not put on much of a pedestal so it sort of lowers uh, the prowess, I guess, of the person on stage. And then you've got other things like, you know, you've been in there. It's a 180-degree audience. So there's people on, if you're standing on stage, there's people directly on your right and directly on your left. So you're sort of surrounded, you know, which is incredible for the laugh. The laugh is louder because it's coming at all angles. It's a very low roof as well. So it sort of bounces around in there. And so it sort of becomes cacophonous with the laughter. So there's so many little things, and there's a billion more of those, um, little things you can do to make the night just that little bit better. All of these things have then shaped the venue to ensure that it's uh, such a great place to be an audience in, and I would imagine for the comedians a great place to perform in. What's the, the feedback been like from the comedy community since Comedy Republic opened? Yeah, it's been great. I mean, we've, we're, um, as comics, we've in and around the community for a long time. So, you know, everyone sort of knew that we were doing it. Um, it hasn't been a surprise to anyone. And so everyone's been excited obviously, that it's coming up and that we're making it and that it's happening. Uh, but now that it's open, there's a sort of um, a realness to it, isn't there, that everyone sort of comes in and experiences and goes, oh, no, this is, this is pretty good. Um, and so people are, which is fantastic, and we're uh, very humbled by the people who have decided to come and put on shows, like Anne Edmonds has just done four weeks of Anne Edmonds and Friends, where, you know, she's been trying out new material um, along with... You know, Luke McGregor and Celia Bacola and Sam Campbell and Ben Russell and a bunch of, um, well, all her friends uh, <laughs> who've been coming through and trying their new jokes and using this space to, um, you know, almost start writing next year's comedy festival shows. Was there any concern for you and your co-owners that after a year or so the sheen might have worn off and crowds might start to drop off or dwindle now that it's a venue that people can take for granted? And similarly, any concern that that might also be the case for comedians? Or has that hunger for the for the space, for the performance, for the intimacy of that room continued? Well, I think, I mean, like you say, you spent a lot of time there during the comedy festival. It's the kind of place that can feel like uh, your own little home in the city that you can sort of come back to heaps. I mean, I'm pretty biased in saying this. As <laughs> I've got a lot to gain from saying this. But, um, but no, it truly does. Like, you know, the bar on the floor down is the kind of place you can just hang out at work after work um, in the city or, you know, you don't have to be seeing a show. And, you know, we've created lots of little booths that people can sort of gather in. And then there just happens to be a comedy show upstairs. And, you know, it's not like Harry Potter. It doesn't cost $500 for half a day. Uh, you know, you can sort of come and go with it quite a lot and, you know, drop in multiple times and see what's on tonight. I mean, it's always, like, every single weekend, there's at least three shows on, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, at least, and usually there's something on a Monday and a Wednesday as well, and then podcasts on the weekend. And there's just so much constantly happening there that the um, Rebecca Austin, who's programming the venue, has programmed. It's So it's such a... Um, you know, and, and a bit something for everyone as well with podcasts and, you know, Granny Bingo are there and there's some improv there now and then you've got your straight stand-up shows on Saturday, Friday and Saturday night and um, some late shows, podcasts. So, you know, I think people just sort of keep coming back in like, oh, there's always something new on and that with, you know, sort of entry-level pricing, it's sort of pretty accessible to people are sort of coming back for that. And the other thing I think is that, you know, it's been quite a year um, and... Just the idea of going out, you know, um, is is attractive. You know, we you can just you can just drop into something. You know, you don't have to make these huge plans. Okay, we've got to book at this time, or we've got to do this, and we've got to do this. It is the kind of place that we used to know, where you could just 
drop in and you know and and not and it's not too big a deal. It, that is certainly, uh, I, I think, at the moment, a really attractive factor for Comedy Republic, that, yes, instead of booking sh- and scheduling something weeks in advance only to see it closed because we go into a, a snap yeah. lockdown or something, you can literally just drop in and take a punt on seeing a show. And uh, exactly. speaking of, t- uh, of shows, uh, Replay Festival is happening at Comedy Republic from the 22nd of July until the 14th of August. Back uh, when the Melbourne International Comedy Festival was on earlier in the year, certainly for me, it was almost therapeutic to be going out night after night to seeing comedy. (laughs) But I missed a bunch of shows, and I'm sure plenty of other people uh, found out about some great comedy only at the end of the festival or towards the end of the run, once word of mouth had had spread. So the Replay Festival at Comedy Republic is a great opportunity to see a a hand-picked selection of remounted shows that were getting huge buzz at this year's Melbourne International Comedy Festival. So, Michelle Brazier... Did you see any of the shows that were on the lineup? I did. Uh, I saw Michelle Brazier, Ivan uh, Arista Guetta, I saw Nikki Britton, I saw Luke Heggie, I saw David Quirk, uh, I saw uh, Sam Taunton, I saw Charlie Zangle, I saw Sammy Shah. <laughs> I did see yeah. quite a few of them, yes. Yeah, great. <laughs> Well, there you go. It's like it's like you've curated the list, Richard. <laughs> well, it's certainly. I mean, the show. These are shows with real, genuine buzz. Like Chris Ryan, for example, the ACT comedian, um, a middle-aged mum. Uh, so, a voice in comedy we don't hear from very often, for example, but who gave me the biggest laugh I've had in the festival. Like laughing hysterically so much <laughs> that she had to pause to wait for me to stop before moving on to the next routine. Uh, Scout Boxall show which was a really quirky, inventive, clever piece of work. So there's stuff that is straightforward stand-up. There's some slightly more kind of challenging work as well. Anna Piper's Scott show, which made me cry as well as making me laugh. It's a really strong lineup of shows that definitely deserve to be seen again. Yeah, and we just sort of felt like, you know, there was there's shows that were sellouts that, um, you know, people would have missed because you just simply couldn't get a ticket. Um, but then there's also shows uh, like, and you've listed some of them there, which were so good and just really, really good examples of the best comedy that Australia has to offer at the moment. And we sort of thought, well, we've got to bring that back because that is that was just fantastic. Um, so, yeah, we've sort of gone through this year's festival and, and it's not, you know, we'd love to, you know, there's so many shows we weren't able to mount um, because we've only got, you know, you've only got so many nights. But, um, you, you know, we'll, we'll bring them back throughout the year as, as well. You know, it's not just this replay festival. You know, we'll keep bringing shows back. But this feels like just a, a good opportunity to concentrate uh, what we thought were the best and most sold-out shows and, um, and yeah, throw them up again. But it's, it's not just this year either. There's a couple of shows in there, a couple of little gems from years gone by, Um so it's not just this year's festival. We've reached back to shows that you might have missed from two years ago or three years ago. Stu Dorman's Death of a Dorman, um, for example, which was it just got huge buzz and it's one of the first to nearly sell out uh, from, from memory this year because it was just, you know, there was this um, incredible work where he had a death mask of his own face made um, specifically for it and then he's doing the eulogy at his own funeral. So it's this incredible work that, you know, on day one when we launched this festival, just sold so many tickets because people who, you know, remember that show and never got to see it two, three years ago are like, yes, another opportunity, thank you. Well, I've <laughs> so, already booked, for example, to see... Uh, I've already got my ticket for Gary Starr Performs Everything, which wasn't part of yeah. this year's festival. It was on a couple of years ago at the Malt House. So the fact that that's, right. th- that's come back as well, uh, it's, a, it's a fun program, it's a strong program. And- you know, going forward, I think that's what we're going to do. So, like, you know, next year and the year after, we'll keep doing this festival and we'll keep reaching back further than just the the year that we're currently in and finding the shows that you might have missed from lots of festivals. Like you say, you know, maybe Midsummer, maybe Comedy Festival, maybe The Fringe, shows that, uh, you know, have maybe never got to Melbourne. Maybe they only hit Sydney or whatever. So we'll sort of try and keep reaching every year to the shows that have gone past. The Replay Festival is happening at Comedy Republic in the CBD and the festival itself is running from the 22nd of July to the 14th of August and as you've heard it's a chance to catch up with some outstanding comedy that you may have missed but 
Comedy Republic is operating year-round. It's not just a festival. Uh, it's kind of like a puppy. It's not just for Christmas. It's for life. Yeah. Uh, and Comedy <laughs> Republic is the same. Uh, it's such a welcoming venue. It's a venue that you can feel safe and secure in, which I think is important in this day and age. I can think of one or two other venues that I would say that is certainly not the case. Um, but... Uh, uh, but if you've not been along to Comedy Republic before, it's located at 231 Burke Street in Melbourne. So between Swanson Street and Elizabeth Street, there's essentially a tram stop just outside. Right in the middle. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I can wholeheartedly recommend both the venue and the many shows that are coming up, as well as the festival, uh, Kyron, just before we wrap up. Uh, any other upcoming gigs at Comedy Republic you're keen to plug? Yeah, um, every Thursday, Friday and Saturday night, literally every single Thursday and Friday, Saturday night at 8.30, there's a comedy show. So if you're in town and you finish dinner and you're like, what should we do next? You should come to that. Or my podcast, Richard, Wax Quizzical, in which uh, comedians in character do a quiz. Um, that's happening as a part of Replay Festival as well. A little self-indulgent plug there at the end, if I don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> and why not? If you've got your own venue, why not give yourself a plug as well? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Comedy Republic, located at 231 Burke Street in the CBD, comedyrepublic.com.au for details not only about the Replay Festival, but everything else coming up, including Kyron Wheatley's podcast, uh, comedyrepublic.com.au. Kyron, thanks so much for joining us on the program. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Dating Amber is a new Irish feature film set in the 1990s, thus the Blur track I played a moment ago to set the scene. Uh, Dating Amber is about two closeted queer kids, Eddie and Amber, who begin dating one another in their final year of high school in order to throw their persecutors off the scent. It's the, they're, they're acting as one another's beards, to, uh, to use a queer phrase. Dating Amber is the second feature film from writer-director David Frayne, although he wanted it to be his first. Unfortunately, the funding wasn't available. So instead, he made another feature, 2017's The Cured. Then he made Dating Amber. Uh, I caught up with David last Friday. Our conversation begins with me asking him if making Dating Amber, which is screening exclusively at Cinema Nova, was a genuine labour of love, given all the effort he made to make sure that it finally got to the screen. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I, I, it's a story I always wanted to tell. Um, and, you know, and I, I think, you know, had I not yet made it, I'd still be trying to make it. Um, but yeah, we, we, we couldn't get the financing together earlier. Um, you know, you just get a lot of kind of um, people saying things like we already have a gay film or whatever. So for, for, for various reasons, it was very hard to kind of get together. Um, but yeah, I, the minute my first feature came out, um, and, and did kind of well um we went straight back to screen ireland and and got got them to commit to this um and it is yeah it, it's it's half wish fulfillment and half truth and i think all the really embarrassing bits are truthful unfortunately um you know i i grew up where the film is set and where we um, where we shot it you know i'm very much so eddie i really struggled with my own coming out in terms of my, my sexuality um and i had a friend in school who was um who later came out to be um uh, gay as well and we just kind of thought how easier our lives would have been had we faked it and that was the genesis for the story um and so yeah so it, it's a very very personal one um and getting to make it where i grew up was very very personal but i also think even though I wanted to make it earlier, um, that kind of delay in making it was actually probably really beneficial because I think um, I used to have a lot of kind of anger and kind of hatred for that period of my life. And I think I, I blamed a lot of um, people for kind of how depressed I was. And actually the, uh, the more distance I get and, and uh, the more kind of affection I have for that period and for the place. And I realized that in many ways I was my own worst enemy. And while, you know, we lived in a very repressed society, you know, and there was a lot of kind of uh, nasty things happening in many ways, I was surrounded by a lot of love and warmth and I was actually myself holding, holding myself back. Um, and so I think getting to make it now kind of meant I could make it much warmer and make it really kind of explore the comedy that existed. And I think that's what I always wanted. I wanted to make, um, you know, a, um, kind of a super bad for queer kids. I wanted to make that kind of really lovely, 
funny kind of rom-com that we don't often see with queer leads. Um, you know, I think we I was so used to seeing myself like dying of AIDS or being beaten up. And, you know, as, as essential as those stories are, when that's the only way you see yourself growing up, it really impacts your view of your, your future. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> One of the things that's intriguing about the film, and I've seen this mentioned in a couple of reviews, yeah. for example, is the fact that, yes, it's, uh, it's a rom-com at heart in some ways. It's a rom-com about friendship rather than love, perhaps. It's a, a story about learning to love yourself, being true to yourself and where that takes you. But so often in rom-coms, if there are queer characters, they're the supporting characters. They're the gay best friend. Here, the gay best friends get to step into the spotlight. And that still, even now in 2021, still feels somewhat radical. I mean, yeah, I think it's still, there's such an insane lack of queer leads in... In, in particularly in comedy roles and in these in this kind of genre in a rom-com and, and this is absolutely a rom-com and it's a story about first love it's just you know it's platonic but it is first love um and I, I yeah I just really wanted to center um myself and those kids and you know have have the funny best friends and funny sidekicks to be the straight characters <laughs> for once um yeah it, I, I think it it it's hard to make a queer film um and i think there's expectations as to what uh, um an lgbtq film should be you know in in terms of it has to be po-faced and awardsy and you know generally have a a straight A-list actor as the lead. And so I think, you know, I think you have to overcome a lot of those obstacles to get one made. Um, But I hope we're getting through that. I think, you know, film works from a very fear-based place. And I think hopefully they're learning from where television has gone now in in showing more um, LGBTQ stories and, and, and protagonists that that people want that material. So I, I do hope it's changing, but it's been very slow and I do think it's quite crazy that there isn't isn't more. The central concept of the film, the idea of two queer kids pretending to date one another in order to, I guess, keep themselves safe from the bullies in their school and the, and the world around them, that in, in itself is a delightful idea to play with. Uh, what also struck me about it was the fact that Clearly, I, I guess the autobiographical aspect of it means you've chosen to keep it in that 1990s setting. That was your adolescent period rather than update it to a contemporary story. Is that partially also because, as well as being true to your past in some ways, perhaps because queer kids today have a, a different worldview, a different lifestyle? Yeah, it's interesting. So I said it back then because it was nostalgia. Um, you know, I was I was younger at the time, but you know, I I came of age in the nineties, um, and I think that period where I set in nineteen ninety five was just very very seismic for Ireland. It's when Ireland um, <clears throat> legalized divorce and homosexuality was just decriminalized in ninety three. So it was a big move towards, I guess modernity for the country um and so that's why it's set there and i did you know i assumed that that like you know things had moved on but what, what i found really um kind of surprising and shocking was how much my younger cast um who are far more younger than me how much they identified with this and how many stories they had of their very recent or, or kind of current school years um like you know and how much homophobic bullying that they saw around them and i think we have a perception that things have moved further than they have. I think we have an, a perception that it's absolutely fine for young LGBTQ kids now. And I think that's not the case. I think we still live in a very straight world. Um, we still um, have to come out. And I think that's always traumatic for people because you are subverting an expectation your, your society has, your family have, your friends have of you. And so, yeah, I was kind of in a way heartened and also quite depressed by how relevant it seems to still be um, and how how much a young audience have um, taken this film to heart and how much they've said it meant to them um, when it was released here in the UK and Ireland. Um, because I just wasn't expecting that. I thought we would get that nostalgic older audience and it wasn't necessarily the case. We got, I think, most of the people we've gotten have been younger. Um 
and yeah, so I think we have a we we've come a really long way, and that's amazing, and that has to be celebrated. But we have a lot further to go, and I think sometimes we do ourselves a huge disservice by by thinking we've we've come further and by thinking it's okay for queer kids because it's not it's 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 still a struggle uh, particularly when you leave those um major cities you know i grew up in a in in a rural town and you know i still think there's eddies and ambers all over the world all over the western world in america and england and and europe and, and australia um outside those major cities and and in them i think probably um so yeah so and I, I I should add I think it's a very it's it's my generation and your generation I think we get very complacent about where we've come and uh, sure it's all grand now for the kids and it's just it's not um it's it's real rose tinted kind of glasses. Now you mentioned the wanting to keep some of the comedy and the lightness in the film and mm. that if you hadn't made it made it now that perhaps wouldn't have been the case it would have been a darker and angrier film. Yeah. Talk to us about getting the balance right between that kind of comedic tone which dominates the first part of the film and then it mm. shifts beautifully and quite effortlessly into into deeper drama. Perhaps there's a, a turning point, a scene of Amber alone in the woods, for example, which right. I, I won't say what that scene is about for people who haven't seen it yet, but it felt like that was the point the film begins to shift towards a, yeah. a more dramatic tone. Can it talk to us about getting that balance right, about ensuring that it could be light and that the shift towards drama didn't feel forced or abrupt or yeah. clumsy? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that kind of tonal balance um, between comedy and drama is it's what I love in, in, in other films. And I, it's such a hard thing to get right. And I think it, it was a lot of my anxiety was wrapped up in getting that right. Um, and I have to say my... Um, anxiety was more about getting the comedy than the drama because I think you know there's a real the you know I think we had an amazing cast I had no doubts that they could kind of go to those places and I had no doubts that you know it would be provided they they delivered which they obviously would an audience would identify and feel for them and I think what they were going through were really honest and truthful things so I felt that was kind of okay I think what is really hard to do and I think probably doesn't get enough credit is making people laugh is extraordinarily difficult. Um, you know, and it's different from place to place. And I, I so I, I really wanted to make sure that the comedy landed and that we had, you know, we could go to quite um, absurd moments when needed. Um, and so I think a lot of my, 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 uh, yeah, my stress was, in both the, in the rehearsals and and in in the editing and in the writing was in making sure we hit those comedy beats um, and and I, I and, you know I, I think very often those very funny moments give way to the most heartbreaking moments and you know they get your defenses down and open you up to to the tears when you need to um, so yeah it's a very like it's a it's a very tricky balance and I was very conscious of that and that and moving from kind of these kind of almost comical stereotypes to having those kind of layers kind of peel away and you see how vulnerable they are and, and as the movie progresses to that kind of big kind of climax. Um, so yeah, it, it's very tricky. Um, I, if I, I wish I could bottle it, um, but it, it, it's, it's what I love in films and in filmmakers like, like Alexander Payne or, or um, you know, um, Tom McCarthy when he does that. Um, so I, I worked, yeah, I worked really hard on on that, and hopefully it came came through. Um, but yeah, the comedy is always harder than the drama, I think. Um, and also, you can have silence in a cinema or at home and be like, "Oh, they're really feeling it," but if they're not laughing, it's deafening. So, <laughs> so yeah. So yeah. Now it's the film. Uh, Dating Amber is set in and around the Curra, which uh, outside of Ireland is perhaps best known as an area where racehorses are bred and trained. Yeah. But if you're a local, say, uh, I don't know, say you're a Newbridge boy, I get the feeling that the Curra military camp, the army camp, casts quite a long shadow. Uh, and I've certainly heard it said that, um, I don't know, perhaps the, the threat of violence, for example, uh, that is associated with growing up in and around a, a town full of soldiers 
is mm. something distinctive about that part of Ireland. Talk to us about the Curra, uh, kind of the the army camp there in the Curra, and why you wanted to incorporate it into the film. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's yeah, it's it's an active military town, um, and um, I mean, I wanted it because I grew up there. I, my dad was in the army, so we we lived in the barracks itself for a few years, and then we lived in the neighbouring kind of town there's a mile up the road for the rest of my childhood and um, teenage years and so and it's a very unusual upbringing because it is a normal town but you're surrounded by tanks and soldiers and you feel like you're in wartime but it's peaceful <laughs> and and you are surrounded by the 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 greatest stereotypes of of masculinity at all times and when you are struggling with your um, identity and struggling with your sexuality that's a very big shadow over you um, and, and and you know and like a lot of kids I wanted to be in the army for a very long time because my dad is in the army and all these you know big strong men around me were in the army and that felt is that felt like what you should do and um, so it's it, it's a very unusual place and I also think aside from the psychology of that I think it's a very beautiful place you're surrounded by these vast plains which are the biggest in Europe that are a real national treasure that people don't really know about because you drive you drive past it you don't go through into it um, it's just a bypass for other places but it's stunning and the town itself is this gorgeous kind of weird red brick kind of toy town with a shop and this and that and then the army um and I just always always wanted to bring that to the screen um I think it's a stunning place um and it, it yeah it's just such an unusual upbringing because you're constantly surrounded by the military in a really weird way you're cycling to school and there's soldiers abseiling or you're accidentally kind of cycling into firing active firing ranges and um as we do in the film and um yeah it's 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 very 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 unusual and it's very you know it's i have a lot of love for it now um and the absurdity of all that but when you're a kid it can be quite oppressive um just because you're constantly faced with what you think is the masculine ideal. <laughs> yeah. In terms of the logistics of filming in the Curra, in the the, yeah. the actual army camp, was that a challenge at all? Because I I don't necessarily imagine the Irish army going, sure, come on in, yeah. kind of uh, whenever they're asked. So. Yeah, no, it was really hard. Um, I think the biggest challenge was getting permission. I think we're the first thing to shoot there since Braveheart, which was a very long time ago. Um, but, you know, because they always have various missions and, and things and they're just very, very um, private about it. Um, so we, you know, once we got the go ahead on the film, basically I started, my dad started ringing his contacts in the army. I started emailing and writing to my local TD, my politician, and just trying to get permission and, and, and playing every angle. And they finally agreed to give us a couple of weeks access. So I was over the moon. Um, but then my crew were not <laughs> because the, you always have to have a military presence with you at all times. You can't just move freely into town. You can't move to any locations freely. You know, they would be very restrictive as to when you could shoot, where you could shoot and how you could shoot. Um, so I was running around going, oh, isn't this amazing? We're shooting it. Look how cool it is. And everyone else was like, this is a blooming nightmare, Dave. <laughs> like, you know, we can't go there. You know, we have a soldier going to the toilet with us. Um, but it was, it was, was such a privilege and I think you know I think there was always those points in pre-production where we were worrying if we would have to try and find another location to act as the Curra and that was just such a heartbreaking prospect because there is nowhere else in Ireland like it and you know you would never recreate it and I felt like when you when you write something that is so specific to a place that you know has that DNA of the place in it the idea, it just, it would be a lesser film without it. Um, so, yeah, so I was delighted my producer and crew were not. <laughs> well, it certainly adds a, clearly it adds a level of realism and depth to the film to be able yeah. to, to uh, kind of have shot there. But the other thing that, of course, adds so much to the film is your lead. So let's talk about the actors who play Eddie and Amber, Uh who are one another's beards. I believe the original working title for the film was Beards, in fact. It was Beards, yeah. Um, it will always be Beards in my heart. <laughs> um, yeah, I, the, the, yeah, I talk about the anxiety of getting the comedy and drama right. The anxiety of getting the leads was the greatest. Um, 
<clears throat> yeah, we spent about a year kind of looking for them. We 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 trolled so many so many uh, casting tapes, and I think for me, the film lives or dies on on their shoulders. Um, and I always knew that. So finding the right Eddie and Amber was essential. Um, and we saw lots of really wonderful actors, and, and you know, in in Ireland, and then also we we looked in England too. Um, and basically, we. We, we loved Lola and Fionn's tapes and I'd actually worked with Fionn before and, and knew how great he was. But we then brought the best young uh, guys and girls together and did kind of chemistry reads. We brought them in in pairs of twos and tried every possible combination. And once we got Fionn and Lola in the room together, it was just kind of like electricity. It was extraordinary. And I knew we'd found our, yeah, our, our leads. And from that point, it was about we did a really long period of rehearsal and um, kind of we met like weekly for months and then um, kind of more more frequently as we went along and for me it was kind of like we ran a few scenes for me it was just a ploy to get them together and make sure they were becoming friends uh, you know I you know I knew they could deliver um, and and they very quickly just became like best mates they're best mates to this day and they live in each other's pockets and that you know that you know i remember there was a moment myself and my my um my uh director of photography were location scouting and we just bumped into them on the street drinking wine from a sippy cup and i was like yeah they're mates now we've done it <laughs> and that was it and it's so that meant we started the production with them already being firm friends rather than ending it with them becoming firm friends and i think that you know that kind of bond they have and that love they have for each other is what makes the movie work. You really feel that and you feel the stakes because of that. And I think, you know, and they're just so funny and brilliant and heartbreaking and, um, yeah, and together they're extraordinary. Um, so, so I was, yeah, so that was, that was incredible. And from that really wide casting we did for, um, the two leads we ended up finding all those incredible kids in the film as well so Amber's um, uh, girlfriends the other beard the bully they all came from that casting they all made it down to that chemistry read and they were all just so brilliant that we had to find a place for them in the film and um, so yeah so I, I think the whole cast are just scene stealing and phenomenal David I have to ask why did you change the title from beards to its current title dating Amber <laughs> like a lot of film title changes it's very not very often not the filmmaker's choice <laughs> i'm very i i very much so like dating amber and i very much so made my peace with it but yeah it was a decision of the um amazon prime who released it in the uk and ireland and but i, I you know i really love it i think it did it does sell the film really really well and it is about dating amber um but yeah, I think there was there was worry that not everyone would know what a beard is, and um, and to that I say I don't care. But also that's but you know, you I got the film I wanted, and 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 I think the title is a is, is a secondary thing. <laughs> Dating Amber is screening exclusively in Melbourne at Cinema Nova, and uh, you can go and catch it now. David, thank you so much for joining us. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. It's time for us to talk about a new theatrical production which opened last night at Theatreworks in St Kilda, When the Rain Stops Falling, is a piece of magic realist theatre by Australian playwright Andrew Bavell. It's about family, it's about legacy, it's about betrayal and forgiveness. It's also perhaps about climate change. Joining us more is director Bryony Dunn. Bryony, good morning. Good morning, Richard. Hi. So tell us about When the Rain Stops Falling and why you wanted to direct this production. Yes, the play is epic. So it's a saga, it's a family saga, it's intergenerational and it looks at what we do as humans when we think we're doing the right thing but we're actually making a mammoth mistake because it was easier at the time and what are the ramifications of that? So what are the ramifications on the people around us and the future generations? And then Bavel also draws it out in the scape of the play, which is what are the ramifications, therefore, on the planet? 
Would it be fair to say that this is a play that leans into its theatricality? It's not trying to be a, a piece of classic naturalistic theatre, that it's conscious of theatricality and almost celebrating that in the, in the text? Yes, absolutely. It really does celebrate it. And it's about how do you find that balance in a production? And each production finds its own souls for that. How, when do you lean into the theatricality and how do you bring audiences out to that? And then how do you ease them into an almost like a voyeuristic type way of watching the more, uh, the, the more domestic or natural scenes as well? So that, that was one of the things that really drew us to this piece. It's on one level, it's a, yes, it's a play about the damage that families can do to one another and the damage, damage that we are doing to the planet. But it's, it's also a play about hope, which feels so pertinent and so resonant uh, because of the times we're living in. Oh, it really does. It's such an extraordinary situation we've been in where for large parts of the world, millions of people en masse have all done a simple act such as stay at home, uh, a simple act to all work together to help each other. And that effect of the, of the community of being able to do that is a good reminder of what capacity we as individuals have. That we actually, there is hope because we can make choices about what we do with our lives and for each other as the response to the pandemic has proven and shown. Now, one of the things that's fascinating about the play and, and its theatricality is the way that uh, theatre can shift scenes and shift landscapes and shift times and do so effortlessly and it does it in a way that, yes, you can, you can do it on TV, you can do it in film by cutting between scenes and places, but there seems to be something about the way that that works in theatre that is almost quite magical in the way that it encourages us to suspend disbelief and go, well, yes, of course, we've just jumped from, I don't know, a, a, a dour, flat in grey, rainy London <laughs> through to uh, somewhere bright and sunny in contemporary Australia. And it's also... You know, yes, but how you do that, you've got so many options about how you do that, haven't you? You can do it in a look or, you know, a moment where a lighting changes within three seconds or you can actually do it at the same time. So we're exploring what the Val explores in this production is multiple. So how do we layer, how do we overlap these time frames as well as make those leaps or do we take our time and take 25 seconds to get there? Yeah, it's, it's, it's really a feast theatrically. Have you had much conversation with Andrew Bavell about the work. It's not a new work, so he's not been in the room with you. Uh, and given all the challenges of, of COVID and border navigation and so forth, getting him over for the show would have been a challenge as well, I imagine. Have you benefited in some ways from him not being present as a director? Because with a writer in the room, particularly with an established work like this, it's a few years old rather than a brand new work where the writer might encourage you to cut a line or cut a scene if it's not working. What's it been like directing and creating and developing this particular production of When the Rain Stops Falling? There is a tendency with a play that has a lot of questions and that has a lot of uh, clues that you need to unlock. This is a very complex play. There is a tendency to wish the writer was in the room with you because then you can just turn to them and ask, what's this about? Or, you know, what's, what's this? And feel like you can save time. But you also, you can't do that with every moment. You need to explore it and find it. And each production will find its own answers for that. Uh, I did email Andrew last year during Melbourne's first lockdown uh, and just, just as more of a, a correspondence, really, not with any specific questions for him because um, we'd already been working on the play in various capacities a year prior to that. Uh, and so, yeah, just, just as correspondence to reach out and share my thoughts about it and he was so graciously replied and so we emailed a few, few times and then we had a chat on the phone a few months ago, which was really nice. Andrew is really connected to each of his productions. He's one of those writers that deeply cares and, and values that a production of his, of a play of his, even at one that's 12 years old, is being staged. He has gone all around the world to see the play staged in various languages and worked on the translations. And he was planning to come over from Adelaide for opening night, uh, but it's tricky times. He emailed us, he sent me a lovely email um, just before we opened to say he will, you know, he is planning to come in the season, um, but with the way Melbourne's looking today, you know, it's all up in the air, of course. We just have to be adaptable. Um, but he's, he's really lovely and really gracious to artists staging his works. 
For people who aren't familiar with Bavel's writing, uh, they may the, the the touchstone for many people, I guess, is uh, the film Lantana, which I think has just yeah. recently celebrated a, an anniversary. I seem to recall seeing an article in the Guardian about that. But what is it about his writing? Um, how would you describe his his tone, his style as a playwright? Andrew really trusts the right the audiences to be poetic and to understand that he if he ex- he doesn't explain things he will tell you the imagery around a situation and from that image you then infer so he really trusts audiences to infer and i think that's quite an australian thing in terms of the magic realism as well and it's why his writing transfers so beautifully across different mediums uh and so there's, the common theme, I think, is his ability to drop it in the, the day-to-day where we so understand a, a, a day-to-day exchange, and then he draws it right out to the poetic and he speaks to the, to the artists um, in, in each of us. Uh, he's also really interested in ensemble and a group of people and what is, what is the effect on a group of people of a particular event or situation, and understanding that about his work, reading his other work, really helped me understand this play in many ways as well. Um, So all the individuals are fleshed out beautifully, but it's actually about how do they interact and how do they correlate and how do we see a family across 80 years on stage. If you've just tuned in, I'm chatting with Bryony Dunn, who's directing When the Rain Stops Falling at TheatreWorks. It's uh, a TheatreWorks and Iron Lung Theatre uh, production. Tell us a little bit more about Iron Lung Theatre, which uh, you co-founded with uh, Esther Van Dornham. Yes, that's right. Yes, so Esther and I met at drama school, or oh, Richard, a couple of decades ago. Um, she was studying acting and I was studying directing. And we, we sort of liked each other then, but we didn't really become friends. Esther tells this story of us kind of dancing on a dance floor and knowing we were going to be friends somehow. We bumped into each other 18 years later or so, uh, and she said, let's have a coffee. And at that coffee, we just knew there was something about each of our skill sets and our, our drawing towards each other that just worked. Um, the, our working relationship is a great balance where Esther does the marketing and producing and I do the directing and work with the creatives and the overall vision. However, uh, we work very quickly, so sometimes people say, you speak to each other quite directly, and it's like, yeah, we do, um, because we don't have time. <laughs> so we occasionally we'll apologise to each other and say, I'm sorry, was that a bit harsh? And the other person says, no, 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 just get it done. We both have kids, we both have various jobs, uh, you know, we're working in the arts, and we just have to move quickly. And we have to also make sure that when we're in the rehearsal room and she's actor and I'm director, that we don't have any of that rush. And so that's been a really interesting experience for us to learn that because we're a young company. TheatreWorks have done a wonderful job of supporting us as a young company. So even though as practitioners we may have been working for years, it's new for us to have a company and um, and do a production of this scale. You know, there's 25 people on our team. So that's really incredible that they've supported us. So we make sure that when we're in the rehearsal room, we're just director and actor and give each other more space and time so um it's 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 a real journey for us about how to make that work is there something that defines iron lung theater's aesthetic uh something that makes you unique as a company it's an interesting question and as we're a young company we're still finding what that is but i would say we are keen on creating work that we think are for main audiences like large main stage audiences but that the main stages aren't doing producing and we also are very specific in each play's style so um so we're yeah we 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 like to make really specific choices Uh, that sounds a bit odd i suppose but if if we do something that is for different venues then we custom design for that venue um if we're touring it's about how do we we come over those challenges um, but, yeah, really, they have to be plays as well that speak to us, that there's a particular line in that play that as us, as as women, as the people we are in this age, in this generation, that has to be spoken to to audiences. So we're really keen in conversations with audiences. Amongst the team that you've assembled for When the Rain Stops Falling, you've cast the actor and performer Francis Greenslade, who is best known for, for comedy and for... 
uh, TV work and and oft, often, in his own words, playing the idiot brother, for example. Um, here you've given him a chance to sink his teeth into a, a meaty, dramatic role. How did you go about casting him and indeed the other cast members as well? For me, I've always seen Francis Greenslade as... I mean, he's hilarious, but I've always seen the dramatic side of him and that's when I'm drawn to his work. He He has excellent taste as an artist. He has a, a brilliant ear for text. And even on a show, for example, Mad as Hell, that, that you know, many listeners would know him in Mad as Hell at the moment, when my, my partner loves that show, and we would watch that. And then as Francis would bring such depth to a particular character that may not even be speaking. And it was, to me, that's the dramatic role in him. And I wanted and was yearning to see more of that. And so I knew Francis because I was working at an acting school and asked him to come in and teach the students. And then when I read this play, When the Rain Stops Falling, I just I just felt it's got to be him. It's just, it's how I see where, you know, what, what, the kind of roles I want to see him in more. Um, and so I, I sent it to him and, and he just said, yes, let's do it, he, because that's something that he wants to do more of. And of course he's, you know, in his own words, he so brilliantly says that to be able to do comedy and be good at it consistently again and again, you need all of the the skills and the discipline and the nuanced timing and the awareness of the truth of text. You need all of that for dramatic roles, and he's very good at accessing that very quickly. His instinct is so finely honed. It's it's a joy to work with him. It really is. In terms of casting the other roles, um, we started looking around. So we, we you know we we know lots of people in Melbourne. Obviously, um, we did run auditions for some roles and other roles. We just knew, and I thought it's it's you for that person, uh, you for that character, um, and it was already familiar with the the actor's work. Um, and, yeah, we, we were at auditions and contacted agents and, and went down that journey. When the Rain Stops Falling is now showing at Theatreworks at 14 Ackland Streets in Kilda, running through until the 31st of July. And touch wood, given that there were no new COVID cases announced in Victoria today, that the season will not be interrupted. But When the Rain Stops Falling, written by Andrew Bavell, directed by my guest Bryony Dunn, it's an Iron Lung Theatre and Theatreworks production. Uh, you can find out more info and book tickets at www.theatreworks.org.au. Bryony, thanks so much for joining us on the show and chookers for the rest of the season. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.